let's begin. Uh, the study of uh, archaeology, it is archaeology, essentially, the study of the covenant of the ark. Uh, first class, you kind of look at it and you think, this is utterly bonkers. Why would we do this? This is fruitless. But let's begin. Uh, what is exa- exactly is the ark? It's a good place to start, isn't it? Because uh, that seems central to the story. The word actually just means simply chest. You know the kind of thing you get you know, in a pirate movie. There you go, there's a chest full of treasure. It looks a little bit like that. If you want the exact details, uh, it's a wooden box overlaid with gold. It's 131 centimetres long. Uh, it is 79 centimetres wide and 79 centimetres high, with poles kind of going alongside so people could carry it. On the top, there was a, a slab of pure gold uh, called the mercy seat, on top of which there would be two angels or cherubim facing one another in protection over the box. Inside, there was a number of things, but most importantly, I guess, were the two uh, stone tablets with the law of God inscribed on them that Moses was given on Mount Sinai, recorded back in Exodus. This was, if you like, this Ark of the Covenant is the central piece of furniture in the whole of the tabernacle. In fact, it's the only piece of furniture that's allowed in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. But more importantly, and I think critical to what we're looking at today, is the fact that over the ark, within the Holy of Holies, appeared the glory of God. Uh, It's described uh, elsewhere, you might have heard this word, it's the Shekinah glory. That essentially just means the dwelling glory of God. No, no, no one elsewhere in the Bible, let me give you a few ways it's described. Uh, It's described as the infinite brilliance of God, the personal royal presence of God, the face of the transcendent God. See, this box, it's not just a pretty box with a few ancient artefacts within it. It is the place where the creator God dwells in his full, awesome presence amongst his people. And as you read through these historical books, 1 Samuel, and maybe you want to read uh, 2 Samuel later, you'll see that this is not the end of the story of the Ark of the Covenant. When King David comes along, he takes the throne and he knows the importance of this ark. He wants to know the joy of the God's presence being amongst his people. The ark had been lost. We might have read that in the earlier chapters to the Philistines. They captured it and I'll take you through that in a moment. But the end of our passage today, you see, it remains in this place, Kiriath Jerim, for 20 years. And David comes to the throne. He goes, that's, that's not good enough. Let's bring it back, reunite it with the tabernacle and bring it back into Jerusalem. Essentially, David is saying, I want God at the center of my life and of the people of God's lives. Psalm 27 tells us in song, David says these things. He wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. See, David knew that he needed this deep-seated joy of spiritual reality. He was the most powerful man in the world. He's the most wealthy man in the world, probably at the time. He was a great, great leader of God's people. And yet he knew that that was not enough. But why did the Israelites ever let such a a powerful, significant treasure out of their sight, where God dwelt in his Shekinah glory? 
Well, if you'd read through chapters three and four, the two chapters that we've kind of leapfrogged over, you'd have got the idea. Let me go back, if I can, and take you through that story. Eyes down, you might get an idea as I kind of quickly, quickly go through. Samuel, as we began last week, last of the judges, we saw his miraculous birth, didn't we, in chapter one. It tells that, that story and the declaration, uh, sorry, the dedication of Samuel to the Lord's service. Chapter two begins with Samuel's mother, Hannah, great woman of God, Praying that most beautiful prayer. Then this extraordinary story, halfway through chapter 2. This man of God comes along and prophesies against the house, the priest of Islam, uh, the house and the priest is Eli, telling of his son's imminent death. Chapter 3, extraordinary story. The Lord speaks to Samuel as a boy. And if you've grown up in Sunday school, as I know some of you have, this is one of those kind of like, yeah, this is Sunday school 1.2, isn't it? It's one of those, just after the Exodus, you kind of go to this one. And my point in that is saying, as we go through 1 Samuel, you're probably thinking, this is all a bit crazy, these stories. But you know lots of them if you've grown up in, in churches. Yeah, there's uh, the anointing of Saul, Jonathan and his love of honey. There's David and Goliath coming up later as well. You'll know a number of these stories, but perhaps not in their context. Samuel 3, so what happens is Samuel here, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel 3, Samuel hears the voice of God as a, as a boy and that is what Samuel's all about, in a sense. He's about hearing the voice of God and then telling it to others. This is his ministry. This is his life. He's characterized by his obedience to that word as he lives it out. And that is in striking contrast to all the culture and the people around him. Samuel actually means, didn't he? I actually mentioned last week. It simply means God hears because God had heard his mother's prayer. Chapter 4. Here we, we get a taste of how bad things have become in Israel with no king in the time of the judges. And this is where the ark is captured and this is where the problems really begin. In chapter 4, you can have a look down if you want. You, you, the ark is lost simply because Hophni and Phinehas, that's Eli's sons, the high priest, they're being hypocritical. They go into the battle against the Philistines. Their lives are rampantly against God. And yet they think, oh, we'll just take, we'll take the ark and that'll sort everything else out. And you can understand why. After all, Joshua took us the ark into battle. He walked around the walls of Jer- Jericho. And what happens? The walls keep tumbling, t- came tumbling down. And that's again Sunday school favourites. Hophni and Phinehas are probably thinking, well, surely we'll just win again. We'll take the box, get it round, everything will be done. But the reality, chapter 4, verse 10, if you want to have a look at it, 30,000 men were slaughtered. The foot soldiers died of God's army. Later on in that chapter, verse 19, 20 and so on, Eli and his two corrupt sons die on the same day. Phinehas' wife, she's giving birth to Ichabod, also dies. Ichabod has explained there what it means. His name literally means the glory of God is removed. And you get to the end of chapter 4 and it's a sense like God is walking out of this corrupt nation. And he's going to take down his people in the process. It's a mess. It's a very uncomfortable episode. Let's get to our passage today. You'll see an outline on your 
on your sheets, just on the insert there, on the back there. I hope this is helpful. Let me take, just point out the three points, three things I think we're going to learn from our passage today. Firstly, we'll see the supreme power of God. Secondly, the heavy hand of God. And thirdly, the holy presence of God. But again, I, I want to say, why on earth do you today want to consider these things? Why do we want to dwell on these things? We don't know where the ark is anymore, despite Indiana Jones' best efforts. So why dwell on this ancient artifact? After all, surely we wouldn't be like Hophni and Phineas, that hypocritical, would we? Surely we wouldn't be as naive as the Philistines, as we'll see in these two chapters. We wouldn't be like that, would we? Our culture, our circumstances, our lifestyles, they're so different, aren't they? But yet defying the power of God is a very common human game, isn't it? And it's exactly what is going on here in these chapters. It's exactly what is going on here in my heart. And I guess yours too. And I guess it's certainly going on out there. Defying the power of God is a very common human game. See, most people we know, uh, most people you know and I know, they know about the God of the Bible. And if they believe, they may even, even acknowledge that he appears to be fairly powerful. But the vast majority of people that we meet, that, that you and I work with, live alongside, they're not in the slightest bit intimidated, are they? Or, or in awe of this God of the Bible. In fact, they might even respond in a very defiant way. They think they know him a bit. They say, ah, I'm not worried about that at all. Such is the common belief in the ingenuity and the strength of humanity. Many of my friends would just say, why should I be in awe? Why, why bother with this? Why should we fear anyone or anything? Few people, don't, few people tremble when they look at God, don't they, today? Turning your back on God, ignoring God, well, it's not something that looks particularly stupid. It's kind of commonplace. In fact, it might even be seen as the, the right thing to do for many. So is this relevant? I guess if you are turning your back on God in any way, shape or form today, yes, if you're like Hophni and Phineas, essentially just trying to play God a bit, make him into your kind of moulded God, then yes, I guess this will be fairly relevant. If you're trying to get God to fit your lifestyle and not the way that he wants you to live, yes, this will be relevant. Listening. I guess more positively though, if you're in awe of God, then in a sense I want to prepare for more awesomeness, if you like. Because this is mind-blowing. Let's look at our first section. And just a note of introduction. It's okay to laugh as we go through this. These are extraordinary stories. And they're written with the tone that it's okay. We'll see why. Firstly then, the supreme power of God. Let me pick up the story first. We're going to run through it very quickly. The Philistines, they captured the ark. It's kind of a trophy of war, if you like, in chapter 4. They've done that in Ebenezer. They take the ark now 30 miles southwest to this place called Ashdod. You see that in verse 1 of chapter 5. Ashdod is one of the five cities of the empire of the Philistines. 
And sometimes it's called, if you kind of Google it and stuff, it's, it's the Pentopolis. It's five great cities of the Philistines. Ashdod is the most important. It's the most central of those cities. And in that city is the house of Dagon, their god. He's the god of vegetation and fertility. And essentially what the Philistines have done here, this is a major coup. They've got the Ark of the Covenant, the God of Israel. Think about it. According to the Philistines, they've walked back from the war field and they've conquered, killed 30,000 men. And they've got the Ark of the Covenant, the great great trophy of that people. Essentially, they've got victorious men and a victorious God. Dagon ruled as far as they're concerned. The God of Israel, his army was defeated and all the people have been slaughtered. And the Ark of the Covenant is, is before Dagon in Ashdod. It's probably trying to display like the subservience of the God of Israel before the great God of Dagon. But before the Philistines have poured the milk on the cornflakes in the morning, look what happens. Verse 3. Dagon has fallen down overnight, seemingly bowing down before the Ark of the Covenant. God... In his glory. The Ark of the Covenant, as it's been called so many times in the last chapter and will be beyond. Notice how what it's called in verse 3 and 4, because the narrator changes it slightly. It's now the Ark of the Lord. Capital Lord. Do you notice that? Capitals? That is essentially the, the covenant name of God. Yahweh, sometimes referred. Dagon, this God of the Philistines, lies with his face in, his dirt, in the dirt before God. The Lord. And the picture is meant to be slightly tongue-in-cheek. But wait for it, because the punchline comes in the next verse. You can imagine the writer, he's got a bit of a twinkle in his eye, because look what he says. They took Dagon and they put him back in his place. That doesn't sound like a punchline to us, does it very much? But it really is. Can you imagine a God? A God who can't even get to his own feet? Who needs picking up and putting back in his place? Oh, it gets worse. Look at it. Verse 4. The following morning. uh, The same. This time, face in the dirt. Now, hands and head broken off. One scholar put it this way. In a very scholarly way. Dagon is a regular Humpty Dumpty. With no Elmer's glue. Dagon, the god of the Philistines, has faced two rounds with the Lord. God. Look at Dagon's demise before the supreme power of God. So the chapter begins with the ark being brought before Dagon in in kind of this homage and submission to him. But Dagon in the end is just helpless and smashed to bits. Now we are to laugh. In a sense it's it's a very laughable episode. But more importantly, yeah, the, you know, the children of the Israelites, as this had been taught yeah, years later around the table, they would have been chuckling to themselves, but their dads would have said, no, think. Because this is important. See, did you notice that God doesn't need anyone to help him? you spot that? The army, his army has been slaughtered back on the fields. Uh, God is in the Ark of the Covenant, is alone in the most brutal and powerful nation of the time. But it seems like... He can take on the whole Philistines and their God on his own. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. 
We're not here because he's dependent on us for help, for love, for anything. God is self-sufficient and he's utterly supreme in his power. You can't manipulate God for your own convenience, as Hophni and Phinehas tried to do in chapter 4. The pagan god Dagon, and like all other pagan gods, required something of his people. They were required offerings, maintenance, lifting up so they can be put back into their places. The contrast you see is so stark, isn't it? The Lord God is supremely powerful, utterly independent of us. He's not helpless, needing our protection, needing our help. We must be clear. God does not need you. He does not need me. But also be very clear. He does want you. And he does want me. He loves you. He loves me. He enjoys relationship with his people. Not because he needs us, but more because we need him. We ought to be very careful using language and even singing songs. And I see this all too often. Even as we make choices in our lives, moral decisions, wisdom decisions. We must be very careful that we don't do that, placing ourselves as the centre point of the narrative. Because surely Dagon, surely Eli, Surely Hophni, surely Phineas act as a warning against such presumption. Firstly then, the supreme power of God. Secondly, the heavy hand of God. Let's pick up the story again. Let's run through it. It's a bigger section, so bear with me for a second. The Ark of the Lord has fallen to the hands of the Philistines, but now they would fall, literally, under the heavy hand of God, the Lord. Who were the first to fall? The people of Ashdod. In verse 6, we see God devastates them, afflicting them with these tumours. Now, most people think, scholars think this is kind of some kind of bubonic plague because of the rats later, rats, tumours. That's kind of the way that things kind of work in that way. But such is the devastation that they decide, right, this ark is causing us some problems. Let's shift it then. Let's take it to another one of our five cities. Let's go off to Gath then. Once again, verse 9, what happens? Devastation. So you get down to verse 10. And it's taken toward the city of Ekron, or near the city of Ekron, but there they're going to have nothing of it. You can imagine them, can't you? Hey, hey, we've seen what's going on in your two cities. No, thank you very much. Let's get all the city leaders together. Let's work out a plan. They hatch a plan. They decide to send the ark back to Israel. So you see then, chapter 6, verse 1. It's a summary there. The ark remains with the Philistines for seven months. But what a devastating seven months it was. Philistines are clear. They're beginning to join the dots. They haven't got it all yet. They may be very strong men fighting for a victory in battle against God's people back in chapter 4. But now under the powerful hand of God, they're working it out. They are utterly terrified. They believe that the God of the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord, was responsible. And as the narrator points out... His hand was heavy on them. Look at chapter 5, verse 11, just for a second, will you? If it, just for a moment there. He even says, Death had filled the city with panic. Uh, God's hand was very heavy there. Very heavy. Let me take you a, a little aside, if I can, for a moment. I hope it's helpful. The word heavy there, uh, it, it's a bit of a word play, and we miss it when we translate it into English, because the word for Heavy in the Hebrew is the word kabod or kabod or 
whatever you however pronounce it. And essentially that means glory. When Ichabod was born back in chapter 4, verse 21, flick back if you can to chapter 4, verse 21, what, what does he say? His mother cried out as he died that the, if you like, the heaviness, the glory, the kabod had departed from Israel. And now that same heavy kabod, kabod, glory was on the Philistines and it was devastating them. The leaders at this stage, they don't know what to do. So what do they do? Chapter 6, verse 2, they turn to the priests, to the diviners there. They've been outpowered by God. In a sense, they just put their hands up and go, we may be a very powerful nation in war and in economy and so on, but we've got no clue what to do here. They need some, something spiritual. So they seek wisdom. The priest's instructions are long. They're very clear. They go on to chapter 6, verse 9. And essentially bringing all of those extraordinary things together. Essentially they're preparing a guilt offering that represents the seriousness of their rebellion against God. They're recognizing that. In the face of such a holy and powerful God, they're saying, all we can do is offer something back. We're sorry. The pagan Philistines, they've ignored God. They mock God. They're their rebellion, their sin was, if you like, a debt before God, as ours is too. It needed to be repaid. Now, I don't think they fully realised that what was going on there. But you kind of understand where they got to. They'd try anything at this stage, wouldn't they? The nature of the offering shows how desperate they've become. The golden tumours, the golden rats. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I don't know. Can you imagine how they kind of got to that situation? Do you think the kind of the leaders of the cities went to the craftsmen and said, do you want me to model my great tumour for you as you cry and craft it out? It's just weird, isn't it? We don't know how they did it. We don't know what size they were. But look what they do. They get this new cart to show it's kind of, it's a fresh start for them. They get two fresh calves to tow this offering back to Israel alongside or with the Ark of the Covenant. Now the two calves, this is a stroke of genius. Philistine priests, they didn't know for certain what they'd been going through. It was just kind of a, a bit of bad luck, you know, put it, it puts it down to chance there in the text. Or is it really the hand of God? The heavy hand of God in judgment. See, the calves, why is it such a stroke of genius? See, they naturally would never go in a straight line. Young calves who had never been yoked at all, they would, they would go in all sorts of directions. And also, their natural inclination would be to turn around and go back home. They knew where the food was coming from. For two calves who had never towed anything before, for them to walk in a straight line to never turn back was a near impossibility. But it would provide an opportunity for God, if you like, to write his signature above all of these circumstances and say, no, this is me. What happens? Chapter 6, verse 12, the cows go in a straight line. They keep on the road. It's interesting, it's literally a highway. For all of us who've done the Bible overview recently, we're thinking Isaiah 40, I'm sure, and, and later on in the New Testament. And they were lowing all the way, suggesting that they were being driven against their natural inclination by a power that was beyond them. And the Philistines, they're observing all of this from a distance. We see that in verse 12 and 16. God is essentially, what's he doing here? He's speaking to the Philistines. Yes, through cows, rather than priests and prophets. But through these extraordinary circumstances, 
the Philistines are beginning to understand something of God, of Yahweh, the covenant Lord. And they would be responsible for how they respond. See, God, in his kindness and his mercy, had shown them in in ways that they could understand how powerful he was. Their land, their God, their bodies have been devastated. What will they do? Will they inquire of the living God of Israel and begin to honour him? Or will they go back to Ashdod and find the broken Dagon, take him back to the stonemason and just try and do a bit of a repair job and go back to their old ways? See, so often people only respond to the pain of a situation. Oh, let's just sort it out, lick our wounds. Rather than actually the truth of the situation. Oh, the pain was great. You know, the Philistines, leaders, they, they might have funded some research into rat pesticides and tumour surgery. You know, some will have probably made t-shirts. You know how you do, I survived the plague of 1070 BC. They probably walked around, hey, look at us. We just kind of cover up the pain a bit. You know, we got through it, we're all right. Teenagers probably got those little, little bracelets, you know, for some abbreviation, look at us, we got through the plague, we were all right. Businessmen, they probably got nice ties. Business socks with a nice little bit of embroidery on. 1070. We did it. I guess many, though, when we experience pain, what do we do? Oh, I guess we just sigh. Not sure what to do. See, we too often respond to the pain of a situation rather than the truth of it. What's it teaching us? Too often our our immediate fears are gone. Our minds are no wiser. Philistine priests get that. They even appeal to the Philistines. If you look back to chapter 6, verse 6, they look to the leaders and and to the hardness of heart in them and, and they kind of parallel it to the Egyptians back in the Exodus. Now, there are numerous overturns to the Exodus here. If you spotted them, well done. There are so many. The Kabod of Pharaoh's heart back in Exodus is that the same of the Philistines, the highway of God as the cast goes straight up the road, mirrors the, the Exodus of the people leaving Egypt. But will the Philistines learn? Will we learn? See, God is stooping here to make himself known, to reveal himself to his enemies. How do they respond? More importantly, how will you respond? God has spoken, no, not through a cow that will be sacrificed as a peace offering to the Lord, but now he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who, yes, was sacrificed as a peace offering on a cross to satisfy the justice of the Lord. See, God has... He's revealed himself in Jesus. Now ultimately and finally, more clearly than everything everything that we see here. To us, God has been revealed. Us who are naturally enemies of God. But how will we respond? Look at how the people of God respond. We see this in our last section very quickly as we examine now the holy presence of God. 
of God. Let's look at the story again very quickly. Once again, it's a sobering story. I'm not going to go through all of it. We'll really focus in on verse 19. Have a look at that verse because it's probably the major point. God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. Now, some, some translations actually have, because in the, in the original, it's, it's 50,000 and, and 70. And some people say, well, it's a lot of people. But it's a strange use of the original language in the manuscript. But whatever the figure, the point remains the same. If you dare violate the holiness of God, that holy kabod, that glory, well, the results will be ever so severe. The people of Bethshemesh, look at them in verse 15. They start off pretty well. The cows come, they make the sacrifice and offering to the Lord. But it does seem that they're fairly casual in the way that they approach God. Oh, they go along with what they think will suffice. They neglect to cover the ark. It says they even dared to inspect it or look inside it, our translation says. Now to you, you're probably thinking... That's totally harmless, surely. But they are doing so, ignoring all the warnings of history and the the law that's gone before. Bit of history, the Levites were the the, the tribe uh, in God's people, uh, the priests uh, of of God's people. Within the the Levites, there were the Cothelites, who were a group entrusted to carry the Ark and the covenants uh, and the contents of the tabernacle, sorry. And even those groups weren't allowed to look at the Ark of the Covenant. It had to be covered. The warnings were there. And essentially it's, it's a big siren going, do not be casual with God. The Ark returns to Israel and the people do what they consider is enough. And they pay this terrible price. The ark was the place where the holy presence of God dwelt. The people knew this. And they just did things their way. And not God's way. The ark is there. How? They don't know that God's hand has been in that. But still, it doesn't move them, does it? They kind of say, oh, we'll do an offering. That'll be okay. That'll be enough for God. We're not sure, but, you know, we'll we'll just do that. They didn't rejoice. Essentially, there's just apathy. Oh, there's the ark here. We'll do, we'll do what we think is right, and that'll be enough. They blatantly ignore God's instructions because they just lack passion. They, they fail to adore God as he has shown them. And their greatest failure is not, is not abject rebellion. It is just being passive in the situation. How do they respond? Properly first. Look at it in verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord? I'm competing here pretty hardly, but upstairs. Look what they say, verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord? The second thing they say, not so helpful. Look at it. Essentially they say, how on earth do we get rid of this thing? This is lethal. See, such is the power of God. They can't comprehend it. They, can't, they just can't handle it. The same happened. Do you remember when Jesus appeared to the Gerasenes in Mark chapter 5? What did he do? He restored the people. He destroyed the pigs. And all the people could do was to beg for him to get out. Please go. Get away from us. We can't handle it. The point was, there's no self-examination. They don't learn anything. They just want to, we're scared. Get rid of it. 
The point is this, don't be like the people of Beth Shemesh, all the Gerasenes. God is holy. His presence is powerful. And the Lord does not conform to being the God you want him to be. If you want that kind of God, turn to Dagon. Or any other man-made God or philosophy of your liking. The culture in which we live doesn't help us with this at all, does it? Because it tells us that God must be the, the calm, the tolerant. It tells us God must be the mate rather than the holy and the awesome. It tells us, as I was reading this week, he's the guide, he's the co-pilot, he's the friend. They're all true to some degree. But first and foremost, he is holy. And if you haven't understood that, you have not understood the God of the Bible. Jonathan Edwards is a great uh, preacher of the uh, Great Awakening in the 17th century, in um, 18th century, sorry, in America, once said this, in the absence of godly fear, it signifies a lack of knowledge of God. See, we must agree in part with the people of Beth Shemesh. It is dangerous to be in the presence of God. Yes, it is. But we must not try to get away from him. God is holy in his presence and must regard that as our most supreme joy and delight, as David did in Psalm 27. But we also must consider him as our supreme peril. We can be intimate with God, yes, but not familiar. He is our loving Father, yes, what a joy. And he reaches out in, in Luke 15 and embraces us, but he's also our majestic, powerful Lord. And whoever you are, whatever your position in society, whatever wealth you own or status that you have, none of us are exempt from the heavy hand of God's judgment. The best. The men of Beth Shemesh learned that at great cost, didn't they? And we are all by nature enemies of God. God is just and justice was come in God's supreme power through his heavy hand and demonstrating his perfect holiness. The point is he's at work. He's shown us that today through cows and tumours and rats and all sorts of strange things. But supremely he has shown us that he is at work through the loving gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in supreme power, taking on himself the very heavy hand of God. The kabod, if you like, went on him and therefore the glory departed from him so that we might know the reversal of Ichabod. That is that we might know the glory of God returning into our lives. See, we can either know the heavy hand of God on our lives, or we can entrust our lives to Jesus, who will take that heavy hand on himself on the cross. Please, do not underestimate the supreme power and the holy presence of God. Examine. Learn. Don't just try and get rid of God. For one day he will come. And he may have a very heavy hand. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these warnings. And if some of us are here and we are doing everything we possibly can to push God to the periphery of our lives, as we hear these words, we're just in a sense shouting back, saying, no, I don't want to hear, I don't want to listen. Please, Heavenly Father, soften hearts. May each of us take moments. I know life is very, very busy. To, just to take moments and examine that God is not the, the cartoon figure that so many make him out to be. The God of whoever we want to make him. But rather is, he is holy majestic in power and one day will come with a very, very heavy hand. Lord, the only way that we know to escape from that right and fair justice for our rebellion is to trust the one who has taken on himself that very heavy hand of God's justice and glory. May we trust in Jesus. Amen.